0: Hello, denizens of the internet! This is Dr. Nairi A. Bakalian and you are listening to Friday Night History, your favorite historical romp with your favorite history dyke! Number 47, Season 2, Episode 14. Bushin War, Part 2 staggering through innovation it is all too tempting to view the tokugawa shogunate as having been a passive observer as the perry mission forced it open at the point of the gun in 1853 it's also easy to assume that the shogunate did not change at all in the years between 1853 to 1868 and popular depictions of two-sworded samurai versus guns does not do us any favors on that count but the fact of the matter is the shogunate as well as the domains had decades of staggering toward adaptation and innovation. I say staggering because the progress that was made was not always even, but nonetheless the progress did happen and had tangible results in policy, in military hardware, and in education, and things like medicine and language skill. There is so much here that it's actually going to be a bit of a challenge to sum it all up concisely, but I will do my best because after all this is a series on the Boshin War, not the entirety of 1853 to 1868. The aim is also to talk a little bit about why these reforms seem to stagger, rather than simply take for granted that they were fated not to succeed. At the end of the day, what I hope you'll understand is that this was not a passive and unchanging Japan in the years before Boshin, and by developing a better understanding of that, we can in turn have a fuller picture of the situation going into the closing weeks of 1867. So, let's begin. Now, as mentioned in prior episodes, Japan may have had a policy of national seclusion since the 1630s, but that did not mean that there was a hermetically sealed situation going on. Foreign traders, primarily Chinese and Dutch, came to Nagasaki through which foreign books and technology also entered Japan. This was also how the shogunate kept up with world affairs. It's how the shogun knew, for example, that Perry's flotilla was on its way. Even with isolationism in place then, the shogunate and domains were learning and adapting, and this continued into 1853. And a pretty important impetus for the mid to late Edo innovation and adaptation was the increasing incidence of foreign incursions beyond Nagasaki, which only picked up once steamships became more ubiquitous and the Pacific whale trade expanded. This included the first American ship to visit Japanese waters, the Lady Washington under Captain Kendrick, which visited Kashinoura in Ki province, modern Wakayama prefecture, in 1791. In past episodes of this podcast I've mentioned the Biddle mission and the Glynn mission as well as the visit of Ronald McDonald, no, not that Ronald McDonald, in the 1840s. There was experimentation in new forms of infantry and artillery drill pioneered by Egawa Hidetatsu and Takashima Shuhan, new naval construction in the form of western-style warships that were present at Uraga when Kamuro Perry arrived there, and even a drive to learn and improve translation capability in English. But we're talking about after 1853, so here are some salient points of interest in what the shogunate did do in terms of innovation and modernization. First was military innovation, and the biggest thing there was the creation of the shogunate army. This was a bold, innovative attempt at making a modern ground combatant force recruited out of the hereditary retainer force of the shogunate. There was no shortage of contemporary technology and equipment from a variety of foreign suppliers. France, Great Britain, Prussia, and the United States were all sources for everything, ranging from rifles to bayonets to pistols to knapsacks. The problem was, shogunate retainers were warriors more in theory than in actual practice, and there's a difference between warriors and soldiers. Warriors do not necessarily make good soldiers. We'll talk a little bit more about that below. The shogunate was forced to recruit from other sources, but it never quite got to full strength before the Boshin War broke out. That being said, several regiments of infantry, artillery, and cavalry were all operational and all on the field in the opening battles of the war. Some elements of them fought all the way to the war's end in the summer of 1869. There were different currents of instruction and inspiration from outside Japan that the Shogunate pursued in building, training, and equipment a new army. The US was one, but the American Civil War significantly hampered that endeavor. Most famous, is the French military mission to Japan, whose officer and NCO cadre all joined their shogunate army students in the forces that fought the nascent imperial army. One of those officers, Jules Brunet, kept an illustrated journal of his time in Japan, and it's thanks to him that we have some of the visual record of the shogunate army as it was when he helped train and hone it circa 1867. The feudal domains of Japan, whatever their affiliation during the Boshin War, pursued their own programs of military modernization and technological innovation, and we'll talk about them in greater length down the road. For now, suffice it to say that the shogunate's methods and policies influenced the domains methods and policies in turn. In tandem with the ground combatant innovations were changes in naval technology and organization. In contrast with the shogunate army. The shogunate navy was the better organized of the shogunate's pair of armed services. Indeed, it's kind of incredible when you consider that the shogunate had western-inspired warships at Uraga when Perry arrived, and within seven years had its first deep-water steamers, with the vessel Maru leading the way and even crossing the Pacific in 1860 and visiting the U.S. Navy's Mare Island shipyard. By 1868, it had a fleet of about 40-odd ships of various sizes, some of them made in Japan, and a growing cadre of officers trained both overseas in places like Holland and locally by foreign instructors. Even American naval officers, most notably John Mercer Brooke, took part in the instruction of aspiring shogunate navy officers. By building up its naval strength, the shogunate wasn't just building the capability to go toe-to-toe with potential foreign threats. It was also building its ability to compel compliance from daimyo, whose loyalty might otherwise be suspect, as in western Japan, where the navy saw quite a bit of action, albeit failed, against the Mori clan in the Choshu War. Of course, crucial to all of this was the building of foreign language capability, especially in English. Dutch had a very long history in Japan, of course, and often it led the way, but there was a growing English language capability among shogunate officials, especially translators. This was already in motion even before the Perry mission, owing to the shogunate's response to the Phaeton Incident of 1808. In that incident, a Royal Navy warship barged into Nagasaki Harbor and brought the Napoleonic Wars to Japan. And the shogunate officials on the scene had to rely on the Dutch tradesmen of the East India Company to translate. Japanese translators knew Dutch, but not English. Between the creation of the first Japanese-English dictionaries, Motoki Shouzaimon's Angeria Kokugo Wage was the first, and the influence of Ronald McDonald. There were a few interpreters in shogunate service who could speak English well in 1853. There were still more by 1860 when the shogunate sent a delegation to the U.S. Seki Shimpachi 1839-1886, was one of the prominent translator interpreters in shogunate service in the 1860s, even doing contract work for foreign diplomatic legations, including that at the U.S. Finally, a few words on medical advances. Foreign medicine, especially Dutch medicine, had a long history in Japan. There was major progress in things like vaccination, and even before national seclusion ended, there was a steady stream of importation of foreign medical texts. Some of the physicians who came with the Dutch Nagasaki also influenced the growth of modern Japanese medicine, most notably Philip Franz von Siebold, who has also come up in past episodes of this podcast. But in the 1850s and 1860s, the key Dutch figure in the development of Japanese medicine was Johannes Ligdius Katharinus Pompe van Merdevoort, or JLC Pompe for short. Pompe had many students, among whom perhaps the most important were Matsumoto Ryojun, senior physician in shogunate military service, and Takamatsu Ryōun, who went on to co-found the Japan Red Cross. So now with all of that said, why did all of this reform still not ultimately save the shogunate? A really big problem, and one that some major domains also had, was the imposition of a Western-style military structure over a web of feudal chains of command, caste, and lines of obligation. Even with cutting edge weapons, there were issues. For example, the shogunate army had modern equipment, but its recruitment from the ranks of the Tokugawa shogunate's direct vassals alone was insufficient. It had to broaden that recruitment to domainal retainers and people of non-warrior castes, and there were problems of discipline and competing loyalties. To lean into building up this new system and have it work meant necessarily uprooting parts of the old system. You really couldn't have both work at the same time. There were some in the shogunate leadership who wanted to remake the shogunate altogether into something called tycoon monarchy, most notably the ill-fated Oguri Tadamasa, but this did not come to pass. So in short, yes, there were many reforms along these as well as other axes. However, the shogunate being by nature an old feudal system and these changes requiring the leveling or dramatic reorganization into a new system, the shogunate's survival had long odds at best. But despite even those parts of its reforms that stuck, the shogunate and its allies faced a formidable foe in the coalition led by the domains of Satsuma, Choshu, and Tosa. This, rather than the emperor somehow independently deciding he wanted to be restored, was what drove the so-called restoration and instigated the war. So who were these domains? What did they come from? What were they doing in the years leading up to 1868 that put them so far ahead? And what does the Battle of Sekigahara, the sugarcane trade, and Smith & Wesson revolvers have to do with all of this? We'll pick up with that and more next time. I'm Nairi, and this has been Friday Night History. Now, questions? night history is a weekly historical romp with me your favorite history dyke dr nairi a bakalyan our theme is buga blue written by craig friedrich and performed by the u.s army blues available royalty free at pixabay.com music this and more is made possible by listeners like you sign up at patreon.com slash riverside wings and get access to transcripts and sources for each episode, as well as bonus episodes. Or subscribe at twitch.tv riversidewings to watch gaming and historical bantering. Thank you so much for being the wind beneath my wings. That's all for this week of Friday Night History. Next time, Boshin War Part 3, Prelude to an Empire's Bloody Birth. Hope to see you there. And remember, who you are and what lights your fire is worth fighting for.